2 Corinthians chapter 10, this is what the Word of God says. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when... Uh, uh, but, but um, humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience, be, uh, when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is, is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for the building up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening. Uh, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. We live in an interesting day. I suspect that even before you came to church this morning, uh, you have consumed in some way some media, whether it be on your phone or on your TV or, or some other uh, source, You've consumed some media that, that, and we understand that all media has at its desire uh, an attempt to influence you, if for nothing else, just to influence you to buy particular products and those sort of things, but, but oftentimes even greater things. For, for leaders, there is a temptation to adjust the message to be most attractive. 
And so those who are who, who's, whose job it is to sell entertainment are constantly thinking about and doing polling and trying to ascertain what do people desire, what kind of entertainment is most appealing so that they can sell the greatest product. Leaders, even church leaders, are tempted to adjust the message, even the way the message is delivered in order to, uh, to, to be most attractive and, and to lead by um, the desires and the demands of the crowd. So instead of asking the question, what do, do you need to hear, oftentimes leaders are, are tempted to ask, what do you want to hear? And of course, there's a temptation for congregations as well. The temptation is to be more interested in what is, uh, uh, what, what is popular, what is entertaining, rather than what is true. And to be more impressed by what draws the crowd than what is faithful and true to Scripture. So I've been preparing for this message. One of the questions I've been struggling with all week is, in our culture today, what has the greatest cultural influence? Now, some of you might say that it's uh, whoever can draw the, the largest crowds. And so entertainers who can sell out large venues and, and are paid well for that, or athletes who, who demand large ticket sales for the, the sports that they, they play in and, 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 and get lucrative co uh, contracts for that. And you might say, well, those folks who draw the largest crowd, those are the ones who have the most influence in our culture. But some of you might say, no, it's those who have the largest numbers of followers on social media. Friends, there are social media accounts that have millions and millions of followers. I was, whether it's on um, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or, or, uh, or Twitter, there, there are folks who have built careers out of amassing large followings. I, I Google just to see what was the, what were the, the top accounts on Twitter, just to get a sense of how many people they were communicating with. Uh, Rihanna has the most, oh, excuse me, Elon Musk has the most followers on Twitter with 133.7 million people who follow his account, which means that when he tweets, that it's potential that 133.7 million people instantly see what he's communicating. That's pretty powerful influence. And many would say that's where the most important influence of our culture is today. Others would say, no, it's, it's, the, it's the traditional large media type things like, like book sales and TV shows, movies and podcasts that have the most influence. Undoubtedly, among the larger culture, the church and specifically pastors no longer enjoy the influence they enjoyed in previous generations. And chapter 10 is, is not concerned with the, with the church's influence in the larger culture or even with Paul's influence among the community. Chapter 10, Paul is concerned mostly, significantly, with his influence among the church and the, church, the members of the church and where they are giving their attention Paul does not make a case for his ability, but rather his faithfulness to God's Word and the approval of God. Now, friends, here's the issue. The, the hope here is to draw the church away from unfaithful influences that may be more attractive and to influences that are true and faithful to God's Word. 
I think chapter 10 has a, a poignant word for us today. Friends, if, we, if there has ever been a, a culture, if there's ever been a generation that is distracted from the Word of God, it is us today. Now, I'm not laying blame. I'm just saying, listen, we have so many resources that, that vie for our attention. Uh, I, it's my own experience. The other day, I, I went into a business where I had to wait for something. And when I had gone into the business, I did not bring my phone with me. <gasps> the horror. Some of you know exactly what I experienced. I had to sit there and wait on something with nothing to distract my attention. Just had to sit there for nearly a whole 10 minutes. It was a new experience for me. Because we've grown accustomed to having no moment in our life that's not distracted by something. And the consequence of that is that the church now is just one small element in your life that's trying to influence your life, your thinking, in your heart. And frankly, when you compare the amount of time the church has that to influence your life compared to all the other things in your life that are influencing you, it's pretty significantly small. So Paul's making the case in chapter 10 for why one who may not be as attractive as others who may not speak as well as others, and, and one who has some hard things to say that are more difficult to hear than what others have to say, why he should have more influence in the church than, than others. And so with that in mind, I, I want to divide this chapter and, and how we think about it in these three ways. Number one, I want to talk about authority. What has authority, or maybe better said, what should have authority in your life? Who are you listening to? Who are you obeying? Who, has, who, who is influencing your heart and your mind's heart based on the authority in your life? Number two, what is appealing to you? What are you listening to? What are you watching? What has the desire of your heart? And I want to make the case that as you grow in maturity in the Word, what, uh, what appeals to your heart is going to change, that you're going to love the Word of God more than you'll love the things of the world. And then lastly, I want to talk about approval. In, in the context of the church, what has approval? It's not the things that men commend. It is only the things that God commends. And we'll, we'll talk about that toward the end today. But let's begin with authority. And I see this uh, really in the first six verses of this chapter. Now, the, the background to this is there were some in the church that were challenging Paul's ministry. And they, they had accused him of of not being true to his word. We dealt with that early in, in, in the first uh, few chapters of, of 2 Corinthians. And now in chapter 10, Paul gives us some more details about some of the things that they've been challenging him about. And, and the very opening thing that Paul deals with is this, what seems like a disconnect between how he responds to the church when he's present and the, the intensity of his letters. And you'll read there in the first chapter, he says, I, Myself, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may have, that I may not have to show boldness with, with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul's talking about his authority within the church. And one of the things that you need to understand when he talks about his authority is it is first and foremost connected to relationship. Now, now here's what Paul's saying when he says, the tone of which I write my letters versus the tone of which I speak to you when I am present. 
that's connected to his relationship with the people. Paul knew the people, and the people knew Paul. Now listen to me carefully here. Pastoral leadership cannot be disconnected from real relationships with people. Pastoral leadership cannot be disconnected from real relationships with people. It's been many years ago, but I was attending a, a, a pastor's conference where I heard two prominent speakers speak back to back. The first speaker uh, was a very well-known Christian author. I, I have many of his books in my library, and he has written uh, many churches that have been helpful for the church and, uh, and is prolific in his writing. He had given a talk, and he's, in, his, in his talk, he's, he was very bold, dogmatic, and oftentimes very demanding. Uh, sort, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, just sort of, this is what you need to do in your church. Black and white, here's how it needs to happen. And after his talk, he was given some opportunity for some question and answer from those who were in attendance. And there were some questions that were posed to him about some difficult things that uh, churches were facing and how his advice was to, to respond to those. And his response was sort of the long of, well, you need to just go back to your church and tell them this is the way it's going to be. If they don't like it, they can hit the highway. That sounds good, doesn't it? You're like, yeah, well, he loves Jesus. He's going to step on toes. That sounds wonderful. Well, he got his stuff and left, and the next guy came in. Now, the next guy is also well-known, but he's well-known not so much for writing books, so he writes books. He's well-known for pastoring a church. He spent the, all, the, the entirety of his career pastoring a church, and at that moment, and to, even to this moment, still is pastoring a church. He gave his talk. And, of course, he gave some things that the church ought to do as well. And then after his talk, he, he was given an opportunity for Q&A, some questions and answers. And there were some questions asked of him about how would you deal with this difficult issue in the church? And his answers were maybe the best adjective would be much more meek. It wasn't that he didn't give advice of how to uh, deal with difficult issues in the church, but, but one of the things he said is you need to go back to your church, get in your pulpit, and preach faithfully for years. And some of these issues, only after decades of preaching faithfully out of, the, out of the Scripture so that you brought your people along to understand what the Bible says, then you need to deal with these issues. And then he, then he talked about some, some more pressing issues of sin in, in the church. And he says, you need, to, you need to deal with those, but understand these are real people with real relationships. In fact, somebody said, well, can you give us an example? And he said, I can, but frankly, I'm dealing with this very issue right now. Then for me to talk about it publicly would not be fair because when I get on the plane and go home, I've got to deal with this issue in my church with real people. And you know the difference was? One guy was speaking in abstract about the church. One guy was actually in a church. And to be totally honest, as I left that pastor's conference, I appreciate the books that the first guy has written. But when I think about how to pastor a church, I'm listening to the second guy because he has real relationships with real people. Pastors often must say hard, unpleasant things to people. But you say unpleasant, hard things to people that you know differently than you say hard and unpleasant things to people that you don't know. Oh, it's easy to be a conference speaker, isn't it? Because you show in, you can say whatever you want. You show up, you say whatever you want to, and you leave, and you never see those people again. But if I say something difficult to you, I'm going to see you on Monday and Tuesday and next Sunday. I've got to pastor you uh, years after this. I've got to deal with your family. And so it, it creates in, in the pastor uh, not, a, not a, 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 a desire not to speak truth to you, but that truth is spoken in the context of relationship with you. That I think Paul loved the church, and I don't think Paul had any desire to be overly harsh or unpleasant with the church. In fact, 
When you read the previous chapters, one of the things he rejoices in that the church had repented of sin and gotten some things right is that he didn't have to deal with some difficult issues when he got there. Authority is connected to relationship. Now, most of you can identify with Paul saying in the opening verses of this chapter that he's more bold when writing than when face-to-face. Speaking hard things when face-to-face is difficult. Now, this does not mean that Paul did not speak truth to the church when he was present with them. Verse 2 is the most telling as Paul pleads with the church to respond to his letters so that he would not have to be so confrontational when he was with them. He wants to be pleasant when he gets there, not confrontational. This is the constant tension within a church fellowship. We want to maintain relationships and we also understand that we must speak truth to one another. The church and those who lead the church must value truth more than anything else. However... Those who love the saints of God will speak difficult things with heartache more than pleasure. I have been around a few people who it seemed like they really enjoyed saying hard things that hurt people's feelings. You ever been around somebody like that? And sometimes those folks cover that arrogance, that pride, that enjoyment of causing pain with 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 a spiritual covering of saying, well, they're just a prophet or they're just speaking truth. Now, friends, we must speak truth to one another. And no pastor should pastor if he's not willing to speak hard things to his church and to individuals. But we speak differently to people that we love and care about. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here is that his relationship with, his authority in the church is not disconnected from his relationship with the church. He is speaking hard things. His letters have been difficult to receive, and yet he loves them and has no desire to be unpleasant or hard with them. In fact, his heart desire is that they would respond in obedience even before he gets there so that he can rejoice in their, in their obedience and not have to be harsh over their disobedience. So authority is connected with relationship, but it is ultimately motivated by the kingdom. Look at verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, some may have thought that Paul was fighting for worldly influence or authority. So they may have said, well, all Paul really wants to be is in charge. He just doesn't like it that somebody else in the church is trying to take his place of authority. But but in verse 3 and 4, Paul defines the battle not according to worldly powers. In other words, he's saying, listen, the issue here is not who gets fancy titles. And the issue here isn't just who gets to to point the way. The issue here is spiritual things. He is fighting with divine uh, authority and fighting for spiritual spiritual truth. He's not motivated by gaining worldly power. He's not motivated by gaining worldly authority or influence. Paul was waging war according, not according to the flesh, but for the destruction of sinful strongholds. Now, the word that is translated stronghold, and it's what the ESV translated, simply means a strong military fortification, a fort. The idea is something with walls, and so it's defensible, it's, it's dug in, it's ready to stay there for a while. Now, the lordship of Jesus and his kingdom is opposed by the strongholds of sin. 
Strongholds are those things in your life that you've defended because you love the sin more than you love the Lord. You love to maintain that issue of worldliness rather than surrender it to the Lordship of Jesus. Every church has strongholds. Every life has strongholds. But listen to me, friends. The closer you walk with the Lord, the more He's going to confront those strongholds in your life. And the reason why I say that is no kingdom can allow enemy forts and fortresses to remain in the land. If a kingdom is established, the very first thing that kingdom does is to rid itself of any wicked or enemy stronghold that remains in the land. And listen to me, friends. If you're a child of God, God is actively working in your life to rid your life of sinful strongholds. If this church is to be a faithful church before the Lord, God is actively working amongst this fellowship to oppose and to destroy sinful strongholds within this fellowship. No church can allow strongholds of sin to remain. No Christian can allow strongholds of sin to remain. As the kingdom of God is advanced among the church and in the hearts of individual Christians, the strongholds of sin must be confronted and must be defeated. Paul says, listen, when I'm with you, I'm meek. I seem meek. I don't, I don't want to be ugly, but let me just tell you, I'm fighting a war. Not fighting a war to get a position, not fighting a war to get worldly authority. No, I'm fighting warfare with divine power to destroy sinful strongholds. That's the authority within God's church. But notice too in verse 5 and 6, he's, he's, he's motivated for the kingdom, for the truth of God. He says in verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The attack that Paul is waging with divine power is against the arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. He's attacking any thought not obedient to Jesus. He's attacking any act of obedience to Jesus. Friends, lies produce sin. Truth produces obedience. Worldly arguments and lofty opinions often seem credible. It's interesting he uses that word lofty opinions. I think what he means by that is impressive. When you hear them, you go, man, that sounds smart. Paul's opposing those things. Because worldly arguments and lofty opinions distract the church from the truth. Friends, pastors and every faithful Christian must constantly contend for the truth of God so that the church will be delivered from disobedience and led toward into obedience. Lies always produce sin. Truth produces obedience. That's the authority in the church. But then Paul moves in verses 7 through 12 on this issue of what is appealing, what draws the attention of the church. And a couple of things here. Number one, he tells us that we should desire what advances the kingdom of God first and foremost. In verse 7, he says, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which... The Lord gave for the building up and not for the destroying you. I will not be ashamed. 
I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily appearance is, uh, is weak and his speech is no, of no account. First and foremost, Paul is encouraging the church to desire what advances the kingdom of God. Now, according to verse 10, it seems that part of the accusation against Paul was that when he was present with the church, he was not as impressive um, as his letters sounded. So, Paul identifies the problem, lofty opinion, in verse 5. This likely is a recognition that those who were opposing him seemed to be oppressive in the arguments they were making and very well may have appeared in their appearance and presented in their speech more impressively than Paul was when he was physically present. But dear brother and sister, be very careful what you allow to attract your heart and your mind's attention. What has your attention will gain authority in your life. Authority in the church is given by God for the building up of the church. That's what he says in verse 8, for the Lord gave for, the, for building up and not for destroying you. Authority, according to the, to the world, is for the protection and building up of worldly strongholds. But verse 8 makes clear that God is the one who gives authority to the elders of the church and that this authority is for the building up of the saints, the church, and the kingdom of God. Now, here's where we all live. So this is, not, this, is not, this is not disconnected from the church. This is just where we are. We often are tempted to desire what looks good and what sounds good. We were told early on we're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but that's what we do. That's our first judgment. We make judgments on whether or not something is valuable, uh, intelligent, worthy of our uh, attention by does it look good? Does it sound good? But friends, what, should, what, what you should desire is what is good for you according to God's Word. What you should desire is what is good for your family according to God's Word. What you should desire is what is good for the church according to God's Word. What you should desire is what is good for the kingdom of God according to to what is according to God's word. You, we must desire first and foremost what advances the kingdom of God. And secondly, we should honor what is faithful to scripture. Faithful proclamation of gospel truth is better than appealing appearance or delivery. Faithful proclamation of gospel truth is better than appealing appearance or delivery. Truth matters more than presentation. Truth matters more than popularity. The only measurement to test by, according to the church, should be, is God's Word. Now, I think the modern church, you and I, are challenged in this, in part because of the... the the proliferation of all sorts of really impressive and slick media that, we're, that we are interacting with on a daily basis. In fact, I see three challenges to the modern church. The first is that the overwhelming attention given to secular media. Now, some will complain that 
Sunday morning worship service runs past noon. If we ever run past noon, we'll hear about it. And some will even complain that sermons run long. But friends, the longest sermon I've ever preached here in this pulpit is about 48 minutes, and that's including the scripture reading and the prayer. And I would dare to say that even if I preach for an hour and a half, percentage-wise, if you compare that with all the secular, godless media that you've consumed Monday through Sunday, it doesn't even make 1% of your time. Am I getting close to home? The disparity, between the, the disparity between the time and attention we give to godless secular media and the attention we give to God's truth is overwhelming. And we have to reckon, dear friends, with that is an issue for the church today. You are receiving and consuming significantly more, disproportionately more, messaging and imagery and, and, and influence from sources that do not love God than you are hearing the Word of God preached and taught. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two is the disparity between the production value of the church and, and, and other sources of information and entertainment. Now, we don't, I, you might think this is technical, but I think it's an issue. I am so very thankful for all the folks who work very hard at Central uh, for, for, for to, to make the preaching of the gospel heard in this room and around the world. So right now we've got folks doing sound and cameras and broadcast and this will be recorded and edited and it'll put, be put online this week. It'll go out as a podcast this week. We sometimes cut it up into smaller sections and put it out in Facebook reels and sermon shorts. I'm thankful for all of that. Friends, you know, little things like we purchased new lighting a couple of years ago and just the lighting makes... I look a little bit better now, amen? That's saying something, amen? And, and, and listen, I want to do all that we can do to make the presentation of the gospel as appealing as it can be. But friends, we can't compete with New York money. There, there are production values and, 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 and media industry that have significantly larger budgets. Their lights, their makeup, their production value will always be greater. And so when you turn on the TV this afternoon, you're going to see things that look and sound much better because they have a tremendously higher production value than anything we'll be able to do here. And because we're attracted by what looks good and sounds good, the disparity between the production value of the church and other sources of information is just a, is an unfair fight. And so many are saying what looks good and sounds good must be good compared to the lower production value of the church. And then the third thing that I, that I see that this, the challenge of the church is a diminishment of comparison between the local pastor and those who have large followings and are presented with sophisticated media production. Because we love a crowd and because we give honor to those who can draw a crowd, oftentimes, whether you want to admit it or not, the guy who can sell a million books and can fill a stadium, you assume is more authoritative than your pastor that stands in your pulpit week by week. But friends, I'm just going to tell you, the brother who may not have been to seminary who stands in the pulpit in blue jeans and a wrinkled shirt but will faithfully preach the gospel to his congregation of 50 is more valuable to the kingdom of God than the man who pilfers the word of God to sell books and waters down the gospel to fill stadiums. In verse 10, Paul acknowledges that 
His letters are weighty and strong, and they're not easy to receive. He, uh, he, he recognizes that apparently his physical appearance was not impressive. Now, he doesn't elaborate on that. None of us would, would we? But I'm just guessing here, maybe he wasn't as attractive as those who were speaking. Maybe he wasn't tall and, and strong. We don't know, but that his physical appearance did not compare to those who were, were challenging him. And apparently his speech is not as eloquent or impressive to hear as maybe his letters. And it's very possible that those who were making lofty arguments were making more impressive presentations in their speech. Likely those who were opposing Paul taught things that were much easier for the church to hear and receive, had a more uh, physically impressive or attractive appearance, and were able to speak with eloquent style that was attractive and entertaining to hear. But friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, you must honor what is faithful to the truth of Scripture. You must look past the production and value and rightly judge those who preach and teach according to the Word of God. And then to put a period on it all. In the last few verses of this chapter, Paul turns his attention to what the church should give its approval to because of what God has given his approval to. And he shares in these, verse 13 all the way to verse 18, these three things. Number one, verse 13 and 14, I think he declares that what we must do and what we must give approval to is first and foremost to preach the gospel. So Paul says, I'm not going to boast beyond my limits. I'm not going to brag about what I've not done. But he, but he says, but I will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us. And this is what it is. To reach even you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says, listen, where we are going to boast is this. That God has given us the commission and God has approved our work to preach the gospel even to you. Friends, the mission of every believer is to preach Jesus and proclaim the gospel of Christ. The influence, of Paul, the influence that Paul saw and that God had given him was to preach the gospel. By God's grace, Paul had preached uh, the gospel to Corinth and was striving to take it even to other places with the assistance and the, uh, and the, the, the funding of Corinth. The approval of God begins with his assignment to preach the gospel to the world. Because do you want to know what God wants this church to do? It begins with this. Preach Jesus. Go and make disciples. But secondly, I think Paul is saying that we ought to grow in faith. God approves and desires that we grow in faith. In verse 15, he says, We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. What motivates the church goes beyond making disciples. I don't mean to diminish that. You cannot disciple someone until they become a disciple of Christ. But we cannot stop with just preaching the gospel. The church must also work to grow disciples in truth. 
Paul says this plainly in verse 16 that his hope is that the faith of the members of the church would increase. It would grow in the knowledge of the word in their faith. And it's interesting here that Paul connects the increase of his influence among the church with the increase of their faith. And this is what I think is happening here. As the church grew in faith and their understanding of the word, they also grew in their love and respect for the one who faithfully preached the word of God. Those of you who have children know that children are easily attracted by the shiny and cheap. There's a company that we've often used during vacation Bible school called Oriental Trading. You can buy cases of stuff. And the cases of stuff you buy, there's not a thing in there that's worth anything more than a nickel. It's all junk. Toys is what it is. But we buy that during vacation Bible school because kids love it. Brightly colored, shiny, and cheap. Now, as adults, I hope when you see those things, you know them, you recognize them for what they are. They're just cheap trinkets that won't last. They'll usually break after a day or two. Children are attracted by the shiny and the cheap. And so are immature believers attracted by those who look and sound attractive but do not faithfully preach the gospel. Some of you have this testimony that when you came to know the Lord, some of the people you first gave attention to, you discovered later were not faithful preachers of the gospel. And in your immaturity of the faith, because they were shiny, because they were impressive in the way they presented themselves, you thought they, were, they had a word to say. But friends, as Christians grow in faith and maturity, you should also grow in love for those who faithfully proclaim the Word of God. You should also grow in your ability to discern who is faithfully preaching the Word of God. And what I think Paul is saying is, listen, my influence among you, church, is going to grow as your faith grows because you're going to love and desire the Word of God more than the flashy and the shiny. Preach the gospel, grow in faith, and then certainly walk in obedience. Paul ends this chapter with two declarations. In verse 17, he says, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And in verse 18, he says, the one who is commended by God is the one who is approved. Paul had nothing of worldly things to brag about other than what God was doing through him. Obedience is not concerned with personal advancement. Obedience is concerned with faithfulness to Jesus and his word. Verse 18, I think there's two words there that are significant to understand it. Paul uses the word to commend. The word behind it's being translated commend means to, to indicate approval of, of a person or event with the implication that others should adopt the same attitude. So he says in verse 18, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved. Now there will always be men who say, you ought to listen to me. Sometimes they'll find friends of theirs that go, yeah, 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 you ought to listen to him. And sometimes that seems impressive and authoritative. Paul says, no. It's not the one who commends himself. He says, it is the one whom the Lord commends. So the Lord says, this is the guy you should listen to. And how do we know who the Lord commends. Well, that's the word approval there. 
To prove means to, the word that's translated there means to, to judge to be genuine. To judge worthy on the basis of testing. How do we test what the Lord approves? Well, the, the Lord approves those who proclaim faithfully His word. If your accomplishments for God's kingdom are things that bring glory to yourself, you've commended yourself and have not served the Lord. If what you have accomplished, though, uh, uh, if what you have, uh, what, what has been accomplished through you testifies to the glory of God alone, you can boast in the Lord. Verse 18 gets to the point. If men commend you, you have nothing. If you commend yourself, you have nothing. Only those commended by the Lord are approved. In a world that worships building a social media audience and, and measures the importance of a person based on the size of the crowd they can draw or the, or the social media followers that they have, this verse calls you to live countercultural. The worldly culture believes that if you are commended by the world, then you must be approved. But the Bible calls you to seek the commendation of God through obedience to his word, and only those through whom the Lord commends, the Lord approves. You may have this similar testimony in your life that in different seasons of your life, different verses become more meaningful to you. And for the last while, a verse that has just become more and more precious to me is Romans chapter 10, verse 11. Now, the reason, one of the reasons why that verse is so precious to me is because I'm near it a lot. So one of the verses I often go to when sharing the gospel is Romans 10, 9 and 10. You know that verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, can, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But I often, I found myself more and more and more recently reading on to verse 11. Listen to what verse 11 says. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Being put to shame is the result of believing a lie. One of the reasons why financial scams are able to trick so many people is that shame keeps those who have been tricked from saying anything. And the reason why they don't want to say anything is because they believed a lie that promised something good to them, but it proved to actually bring destruction or harm to them. And there's shame in that because what they believe proved to be a lie and was not true. They had put their hope in something that was not worthy of their hope. And there's a natural emotional response to that of shame. Today, many in our world are being led away from God with the promise of better things. Those making these promises are doing so with slick promotion and presentation. Many are turning away, and, and the growing crowds of those who are turning away give credibility and influence to the leaders that are making these false promises. The promises made that happiness and wholeness, and 
peace can be found in worldly pursuits and in the efforts of the flesh. But like all lies, all lies, at some point, the deception is revealed and those who have believed the lie will be ashamed that they ever believed it and that they sacrificed so much for it. The only promise, listen to me, friends, the only promise that will never, ever disappoint is the promise of the gospel of Jesus. That's it. Brothers and sisters, you must not be turned away by the, the shiny the attractive lies of those who are not faithful to the Word of God. Honor those who are faithful to the Word of God. Develop in your own heart and mind desire for what the Lord loves and what the Lord honors in His truth. And seek the approval of God and not man. And here is my good promise to you. For every last one of you, if you believe on the Lord Jesus, you will not be put to shame. For his promises, every last one of them are faithful and true. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.